Acts 22, verse 22 through 23, verse 11. You know that you are aspirational when you're going to cover multiple chapters in a morning, and so we're going to do our very best to do that. Love you, kiddos. Can't wait to hear all that you guys learn about Jesus. Thank you, teachers. Appreciate y'all tons. All right, Acts chapter 22, verse 22 and following. Read this way. Hear this, the word of the Lord. Up to this point, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and clinging, or flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Verse 30, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Verse 4, those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Verse 6, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune after Uh, The the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. These are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, as always, uh, come to you before we look to your word. How vast, how extravagant and beautiful is the love of God. And so we ask that by your spirit, would you illuminate, would you shine brightly your truth and your beauty from the scriptures today? Would we see your grace that would give us help in our time of need? 
I pray for those of us who are coming feeling encouraged by a great week that we strung together a couple of days where we feel like we've got it together. Would you protect us from pride? I pray for my brothers and sisters who are feeling overwhelmed by the weight of guilt and shame, difficulty, challenge. Would you protect them from despair today by your word? What a good God you are that you do both. With the same word, you encourage the arrogant and humble them, and you lift up the humiliated, and you give them the dignity and worth that you imprinted upon their soul by your very image. And so, God, I pray you'd help us as we come to your word to be submissive to it. I pray for myself. Help me to be clear. Help me to be responsible with your word. Help me to avoid meaningless excursies away from your word. Help me, Father, to be anchored deeply in the truth the enduring reality of your character that's going to shine brightly from this scripture today. And so we are eager for that, God, because we need it. So we ask for this and a thousand other things we aren't even wise enough to ask for now. We ask that you would do those things and more. Glorify yourself. Build up your church. Make our feet ready for obedient action. We ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. And if you remember, uh, Paul is still in Jerusalem. Through chapters 21 and 22, the apostle arrives in this city, and it was a difficult journey, in particular because a lot of his family and friends were dissuading him from continuing the journey. They simply said, hey, it's not going to go well for you in Jerusalem. If you preach this gospel, if you preach this inclusion of the Gentiles in the capital city of Israel, it will not go well for you. But Paul already knew this. If you remember, the Holy Spirit revealed to Paul that no matter what city you go into, you will be met with affliction and imprisonment. And so Paul persists. And though he uh, knows that it's going to happen, it still is quite a shock when he is surrounded, when he is beaten, when he is arrested, because all of this is an incredible injustice. In fact, through the last portion of Scripture, the leading authority, the local authority, didn't even know what Paul did. Didn't even know what he did that was wrong, and yet he beat him, hurt him anyway. And it's in the middle of all of this confusion, in the middle of all of this anger that we read last week about Paul recounting his story. His story about how the Lord met him, the Lord Jesus met him on a Damascus road and gave him grace, spoke truth to him. He was blinded converted him, took, took his heart of stone, gave him a heart of flesh. The one who is executing Christians becomes a Christian and now is called to be a witness to the non-Jewish world. Only God could do that. Only God could do that. Only God could take one who was the main foil of the story of Acts to become one of the greatest champions of the gospel. This is what we have seen. And many of us have gone, I've heard that before. That's a great story. Can you believe it? Paul is the last person we would ever think would come to know, love, and follow Jesus. And that's exactly who Jesus uses as a main instrument to build his church. This is why the crowd's angry. The crowd is angry because the message of Paul confronts their own story. And in fact, they were totally cool with Paul's story until he said this. Put your eyes back up on chapter 22, verse 21. The last part of the previous chapter, previous passage rather, that we were in. The crowd was cool until he said this. And he, that's Jesus, said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This was the last straw. Look at verse 22. Up to this point, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. Verse 23, and as they were shouting and throwing their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why 
they were shouting against him like this. See, the crowd has already set away with him. This is the exact language used when Jesus is before a crowd in Pontius Pilate, the local authority at the time. The crowd hears his request. Which one do you want? You want Barabbas or you want Jesus? And about Jesus, they say in Luke 23, away with him. So why are they so upset? See, Jews were not against proselytizing or or sharing their Jewish faith with Gentiles, with non-Jews. They would love for non-Jews to come to the God of the Bible as long as they essentially became Jewish. They didn't believe it was right and righteous for a Gentile to stay a Gentile. They had to become Jewish. They wanted them to take on their Jewish customs and traditions, especially their law, the law of Moses. See, to them, what Paul was doing, what he was teaching, the gospel, what you and I know as the gospel, was it a direct assault to their prescribed understanding of what it meant to follow the God of the Bible, Yahweh, is to become a Jew. It was much more ethnic, much more cultural. See, they had taken something that God had given by grace, and instead of being transformed to gratitude at gracious stewards, they actually became entitled to something and redefined that grace for themselves. The tribune, who's that local authority, brings Paul back into jail and then orders him to be examined by flogging. This is what's incredibly interesting and helpful for us to take some time to understand, because notice that the flogging comes in order to figure out what's going on. Paul has not been accused of something or rather convicted of something yet. The the tribune, this local authority, doesn't even know what's going on yet. He doesn't understand why the crowd is so upset. And so he he is going to execute a kind of level of authority and of punishment in order to bring about a presumed confession of his devious motives and intentions in Israel. Remember, Jerusalem is under Roman rule. So the irony of this, of course, is that a Roman commander is protecting Paul from being hurt by a crowd, from violence of a crowd, and yet he is using violence in order to get from Paul what he wants. Violence seems to be the methodology of both the local authority as well as the angry religious mob. History indicates to us that the commander of the tribune is a man named Claudius Lysias. He was one that oversaw this brutal practice regularly. Commentator David uh, Peterson says this about what Paul is about to be uh, exposed to. Luke, the writer of Acts, refers to the Roman practice of examining someone by scourging. This involved whipping with leather thongs or thongs to which rough pieces of bone and metal uh, had been attached. The scourge was a murderous instrument of torture, much more fearful than the lictor's rods of Philippi. A slave or alien might be scourged in order to make him confess the truth. The theory being uh, that he could not be trusted to confess without this kind of persuasion. Paul would be exposed to some of the most inhumane treatment imaginable, all because he identified with Jesus. He preached a gospel of inclusion of the Gentiles all under grace. See, they said away with him because he spoke the message of Jesus. They said away with him because he lives the way of Jesus. Away with him because he will know the suffering of Jesus. Away with him he will know the fate of Jesus. As we walk through Acts, we've walked through suffering. We've read uh, the story of Stephen's martyrdom in Acts 7. We've read of the unnamed men and women hauled off to prison simply for being Christians. We've read of Peter's imprisonment. 
We've read of Paul's stoning and being left for dead outside of Lystra, that he was beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. He avoided an angry mob that wanted to kill him in Ephesus and now here in Jerusalem, beaten, arrested in chapters 21 and 22. Suffering is a part of the reality. It's part of the backdrop. It's It's normative for the early church. And so if we're not careful, an unintended result of being exposed to so much suffering in the early church is to begin to glorify suffering, is to begin to glorify it and view it in such a way as if it is a part of God's good world. But we must understand that suffering is not independently virtuous. Suffering is not independently virtuous. In fact, much of our suffering, let's just be honest, comes because of our own sinful proclivities. Much of the difficulties you and I face in life are because we did something foolish, evil, or sinful. While suffering, for the sake of the gospel, though, of a different kind, is this beautifully stretching joy. Different than the consequences you and I are exposed to when we sin. This is a work of God's grace in the midst of his broken world to bring about his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Yet, within our gospel charge is to not merely just take suffering, to not merely just go through it. See, our gospel charge gives us great permission and even implores us to wage war against unjust suffering. This is actually what begins to take place in verse 25. Look at this. In the midst of all of this suffering, Paul, still not yet healed from his most recent wounds, does this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Paul's done this before. It's actually quite nerve-wracking for us to read 2,000 years later. You want him to bring this up like long time ago. Could you just walk into Jerusalem and say, I'm a Roman citizen, don't touch me. Now, for some reason, Paul, in Philippi and now here in Jerusalem, waits till the last possible moment to bring up his citizenship, to bring up who he is. Now, to be a Roman citizen had incredible power, and we begin to see this unfold. As Paul mentions this, that he's a Roman citizen, look at everybody respond. Everybody on Claudius' team starts freaking out. Look at verse 26. When the centurion heard this, When they heard that he, in other words, was a Roman citizen, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, that's to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul's like, yes, I just told that guy. Verse 28, the tribune answered, I I bought this citizenship for a large sum. In in other words, who are you? You don't have the kind of money I have. You're You're not working the kind of system I can work in. And here's, Paul drops this bomb. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. Deal with it, homie. Verse 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Paul is stretched out, still bleeding from his previous wounds, about to go through one of the most heinous and inhumane beatings crafted by humanity. And in weakness, perhaps as a final attempt, he says, I'm a Roman citizen. And though it's phrased in the form of a question, it's really more of a statement. You can't do this. You can't do this. Paul doesn't just go through suffering. 
I think, I think if we're not careful, we read these stories of Paul like he's just a glutton for punishment. This dude's just like, where is somebody going to hurt me the most? I'll go there. God be honored. That's not it at all. Paul is going to places that need to hear the gospel, and he's saying, despite what I find there, I'm going to go. It's a completely different charter. He is not looking for suffering. Rather, he is willing to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. But his resistance is not contrary to the gospel. This is so important. His resistance is based upon Roman law. Paul is not asking for an escape from obedience or righteousness. He is not asking God to change his will. He is not asking God to change his law. He is requesting the appropriate execution of the law. He's asking for justice, but does not lay down his holiness in the process. In fact, in his request, it's revealed that Paul is a citizen by birth. Something juxtaposed next to this tribune who is over him, who likely purchased his citizenship through bribery. So Paul is showing that there is a purity about his character. There's a purity about his identity that his accuser, his oppressor, does not possess. Not wanting to give him back to the mob, Claudius devises a plan. Look at verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, isn't it interesting? The tribune, this local authority, Claudius, still has no idea why the the mob is so angry. He's still completely clueless. Luke, who is writing this, has given us a picture in order to help us understand the, the, the big framework of what the Lord is teaching us through the story of the church. We know this. But in order to maintain power in his jurisdiction, order in his jurisdiction, he is essentially, Claudius is saying, if I can't get Paul to speak through Roman law, because he's right, I can't touch him, he's uncondemned, I'm going to use Jewish law. Now, Claudius is not part of the Jewish council. He has no authority to make them come together. He cannot tell them to have a legal and binding authoritative gathering in order to condemn Paul as a heretic. So likely what's about to take place is a very informal fact-finding conversation that Paul will have with the local religious authorities. So that takes place at the beginning of chapter 23. Look at verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Verse 2, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul was like, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul speaks, and it seems like a pretty innocent statement, and is immediately struck on the mouth. It's unclear exactly why Ananias, the high priest, had him struck. But a couple of things we can pull out from context. One Ananias is not a good person. History actually proves this. Josephus, a great Jewish historian, writes about Ananias that he was a great hoarder of money. 
This is one of the quotes that lasts beyond Ananias' life. A great hoarder of money that he even took tithes that belonged to the priests by violence. So one of the reasons that Ananias had Paul struck was because this is just sort of how Ananias operated. He was a mean dude. Secondly, Paul is claiming that he's innocent. After a mob, after an inquisition by the Roman authorities, and now still before the council, he's still claiming that he is innocent. In other words, what Paul is saying is that I can be a good Jew, ethnically, religiously, and yet also be a Christian. This would have been a direct assault that would have enraged Ananias. Not because he didn't want to see Gentiles included, not because he didn't believe in this possibility, but ultimately because he had this ethnic superiority of Israel, believing that Israel should be the one who would be submitted to just as much as God, ultimately. Now, it may be helpful at this point to summarize a little bit of what's taken place with Paul. Paul is beaten by a crowd because they thought he defiled the temple back in chapter 21. He didn't. Paul was beaten by the tribune because they thought he was an Egyptian terrorist. He wasn't. Paul was beaten by the Jewish council because they thought he was guilty of blasphemy. He wasn't. All of this to say is that it may be an understatement at this point to say that Paul was weary of injustice. Paul was likely frustrated. And in the midst of his frustration, he snaps back in condemnation and essentially calls them all hypocrites. Paul is resisting violence. He's resisting mistreatment. He's resisting injustice in his suffering. Specifically, he rebuffs the high priest. Now, Paul didn't know. Obviously, he says it. He didn't know that he was the high priest. Remember, this is an informal gathering. So the high priest likely did not go back and get like his home team game garb on. He doesn't have his priestly vestments on that all would have connotated that he was a high priest. Also, it had been a minute since Paul had been in Jerusalem. There was a new high priest now. So he had never met him. He wasn't dressed like the high priest. He did not know. And yet, watch this. As the accusation comes, hey, you can't speak to the high priest like that. What does Paul do? Instead of continuing to fight back and say, I don't bow down any high priest. I don't care who he is. He doesn't have the right clothes on. I don't even like him. He's a mean guy. What does he do? He admits his ignorance and he acknowledges Exodus 22 verse 28, which prohibits speaking evil of a spiritual leader, in particular a high priest. He submits to the word of God. See, though Paul is virtuously resisting and fighting against unjust persecution and suffering, he is still not above correction. He is open to being challenged on the basis of God's word, and he seems even humble in the face of accusation. What his example shows us is that though we may be right in our general struggle for righteousness. And even when we are victims of horrific injustice, the way of Jesus remains in pursuit of both ultimate justice and personal holiness. These are not mutually exclusive, but rather complementary. Trading one evil for another is not permissive in the economy of Jesus' kingdom. We've seen this ethic actually articulated recently in our history and lived out with incredible charity and clarity in the movement of the United States, particularly in the movement of the past 60 years of civil rights. The 1961 summer issue of Cross Currents, which was a Jewish journal, featured a man named James Baldwin, one of the greatest American essayists and poets of the 20th century. The interview is entitled The Negro in American Culture, and when asked about his self-concept as a writer, as an American, as a black man in the United States, here's what he said. 
To be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. So the first part of the problem is how to control the rage so that it won't destroy you. Part of the rage is this. It isn't only what is happening to you, but it's what's happening around you all the time in the face of the most extraordinary and criminal indifference, the indifference and ignorance of most white people in this country. Notice he names the injustice, and he names it in a way that I'm real uncomfortable, white dude reading this quote, right? He names the injustice with incredible clarity. And his work, his words, all that his life possessed worked against these injustices. However, he's also concerned, Baldwin is, with propriety, personal health, and self-control in the face of those injustices. In so doing, he identifies with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., his entire nonviolent strategy against the pervasive suffering of black Americans in his lifetime. He says this, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do, not do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Or Cesar Chavez, a Latino-American civil rights advocate who worked for the equality of migrant farm workers in the 60s and 70s in California, said this, the preservation of one's own culture does not require contempt and disrespect for other cultures. See, each man's ethic and a struggle for racial equality in America is based, albeit sometimes indirectly, on the idea, the biblical logic espoused by the Apostle Peter when he spoke to a dispersed and suffering church these words. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. We ought to resist evil. We ought to work against injustice and suffering. We also must be kept unstained by sin. See, Paul is a victim of incredible injustice, yet he continues to submit to the will and the word of God in other holiness, and in fact, an uncomfortable holiness. This is the heart of God. This is his character coming about in one of the instruments that he uses for his purposes, the apostle Paul. This is who God is. This is what he is like, that God is fully just and God is completely holy. God is fully just and he is completely holy. God's justice, when we, when we speak about God's justice, we're speaking about his claim that one day all shall be well. Can I get an amen? That one day all shall be well. He has combated, is combating, and one day all streams of evil, violence, and unrighteousness and injustice will be put to an end. He does this from the seemingly innocuous, like lying to your friend about what you're really doing after church. He will bring justice to that, but also to the much more severe and seemingly unredeemable, like the 1994 genocide in Rwanda. He will bring justice. The scriptures bear witness to God's unstoppable justice and righteousness when Amos writes, but let justice roll like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. See, the justice of God is moving in like a river, steady, constant, inevitable. The righteousness of God is breaking in like a stream that goes on forever and ever. See, they may say, away with him, but God says, one day all shall be well. God's holiness is his moral perfection, his set-apartness, 
The Hebrew word is kaddish. Its root means to cut or to separate. That means God is altogether removed from us morally, sovereignly, and in his perfection. He has a flawless character. What he says is good. What he thinks is right. What he loves is beautiful. His holiness is revealed both in his nature and who he is and his character and how that comes about in real space and real time. This is what motivates six angels, as we sang earlier, to shout back and forth all day long, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. God is removed from us. God is different than us. God is over us because God is holy. God's justice and his holiness shape in our gospel life. In light of who he is, he has equipped us, he's given us everything that we need, and he has called us, he has spoken over us to be people not who choose justice or holiness, but to live as just and holy people. His character sets the course for our lives. And by his character, he reveals the hope for Israel, the hope for you and I. And this is what Paul articulates next in verse 6. Chapter 23, verse 6, reads this way. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So perhaps Paul's first pass at staving off suffering doesn't work. He tries another route. At least he tries to avert or divert their attention away from him and toward one another. He tries to divide the room by way of the hope of the resurrection. See, before Paul, there are these two orders, and they had a large disagreement. Within the Sanhedrin were Sadducees and Pharisees, and one of the fundamental differences between them is that Pharisees believed in the supernatural and Sadducees did not. And so Paul essentially just goes, what do y'all think about the supernatural? Drops it in the room and sort of backs up and lets them start making war with each other. After all, this is what produces, or what God rather, produces because he is just and he is holy. He brings hope. Because is it not hopeful to know that in an unjust world, there is a God who is over everything that will one day bring full, complete, and utter justice? Isn't it hopeful to know that in the face of sin and shame, there is a God who is unstained by this world? This is deeply hopeful for us. And yet hope is often divisive. See, watch Paul divide the room. Here it goes. This is exactly what I think he was hoping for. Look at verse 7. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces, by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The Pharisees and Sadducees just lose their minds. Paul succeeds in turning the room away from himself and divides it. They're now concerned with one another. He does it because he knows about this separation. He knows about this distinction. And so what Paul is essentially saying is he produces this. It's not just nefarious and to get their attention off, but he's trying to make the case, this is why you guys are so upset. In, in other words, Paul is saying, I'm not imprisoned and on trial because I defiled the temple. I purified myself. 
nor because I'm some Egyptian terrorist. I'm a Jew. Nor because I'm a religious blasphemer. I'm zealous for Yahweh. Paul is essentially saying, all of this is happening. You're so upset because I'm claiming the good news of Jesus. The good news is that there is hope and resurrection of the dead in Jesus Christ, both for the Jew and the Gentile. The truth of God divides. The hope of God divides. We are exposed when God's justice is revealed. We are exposed when the purity of his holiness is made clear. After all, his justice shows us how unjust we really are and how much injustice there really is in this world. His holiness reveals my sinfulness and my shame because God's limitless justice shows me where my limits are. God's unfathomable holiness shows me how comfortable I am to live in proximity with my sin. See, the Pharisees and Sadducees are immediately distracted by by what I think their attention was on the whole time, themselves. See, it may appear as if they're holding Paul on trial for the sake of justice and national well-being, but really I think they're scared. You see, instead of seeking true justice, living in holiness, which produces a peace and a hopefulness, These religious leaders are incredibly fearful and move to violence. They're not working for justice. They're protecting their power. They're not living in holiness. They are really composing or compromising, rather, personal virtue for personal protection. This breeds violence, and in order for there to be no more bloodshed, the tribune literally has to remove Paul. Think about this. The, the non-religious person in the bunch, at least in his own mind, the tribune who brought him to the people of God to figure it out, is now saving an apostle from the people of God because they're about to kill him. What Paul is able to do, refrain from violence and sin in the pursuit of justice and resisting suffering, the religious leaders prove unable to emulate. They couldn't do it. When challenge comes their way, they respond in sin and they respond in violence. This is why even in the commotion, don't you love this? Everybody is freaking out. And the scribes, the guys who know, like the, they're like, this dude's innocent. Like, you imagine just like punching each other, throwing things. More dust is flinging, cloaks are flying off, all of this. They're going, we find nothing wrong with him. He's legit. Paul remains holy in the face of injustice. In the midst of all of that, and they even recognize it in the commotion. See, sin is never permissible. In other words, God doesn't look and go, ah, it's cool, I can see your situation, and you like submitted that exception clause, we have received it, the Holy Spirit acknowledges that that was a legit case, therefore you do not have to live a holy life, do as you please. God's holiness is not passive like that. It's not up for debate. It's not up for a situational theory. We are never within our rights to neglect God's justice nor his holiness for the sake of the other. We see this ultimately, this temptation. While it might seem like common Christian knowledge that we can't just choose God's character qualities as we see fit, it bears in reality that the opposite is actually true in our hearts. This is true both systematically and personally. I'd like to walk through a couple of those things with us how we systematically choose our definition or our version of holiness over what true justice is. We do this every single day, but let's start in history. See, while white preachers in the North and the South preached about God's holiness personified in the liberating work of Jesus Christ, they refused to demonstrate God's justice 
by liberating black Americans enslaved in their own plantations. Moving closer to our current cultural moment, as many have lost count of the fatal shootings of unarmed black men. Many Christian churches, many Christian leaders, many people in our own hearts have critiqued the unlawful purchase of cigarettes and the wrong clothes at the wrong time, at the wrong place. As immigration has become more central conversation in our country, more and more news outlets are picking this up, and many Christians want to make sure that migrants are obeying the law as they come across our borders before they want to make sure that the systems of welcoming the stranger are just. As 200 Southern Baptist churches preached about the holiness of God over the past 20 years, they hid stories of gender-based violence in their pews and their pulpits. If we believe that our pursuit of holiness by our definition absolves us from seeking justice, we do not know holiness. And we are not holy. In other words, if you pick one, you lose both. If you try to be holy and neglect justice, you are neither just nor are you holy. Let me put it to you this way. If the Apostle Paul was imprisoned today, if he was tortured today, and we heard local religious leader incites a riot in Ephesus, Lystra, Jerusalem, the evangelical church would have assumed he deserved it. Disclaimer, because I know where some of you are going, and let me just get there before you do. We could take some time and show how we choose justice over holiness. This would often result in our um, ethic of fairness and understanding of truth. The basic soil of this concept is that a truly modern form of justice always allows someone to do whatever they want as they see fit in their own mind as long as it doesn't prevent someone else from doing what they desire to do, what they see fit. We don't take a view of God's holiness in that case. Rather, we make desire central and identity central and expression central. We don't look at God's holiness. We have decided that justice is for you to do as you please as long as you don't take that freedom away from someone else. But that's not where the text took us today. Secondly, this doesn't just take place systematically. This takes place quite personally. As I was home on Wednesday working on this sermon, one of my kids I heard in the other room yell out, if you hurt me, I'll hurt you. I like pressed pause. <laughs> I called him over to my office. He sat in my lap. He repeated his logic for me. We opened up 1 Peter 3. It said, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Now we may say, as mature adults, oh, I quickly dismiss that. I don't live like that child. You need to educate your child, pastor. Like this is a, a true view of justice. It needs to be like this, but let's just be real. We live out his ethic every single day just the same. We may be quick to dismiss it verbally, but ultimately our life bears witness to believe, believe, if you hurt me, I'll hurt you. Think about the last time you found out that a cousin didn't invite you over to that get-together. There was a little thought, I'm not going to invite you to my thing next time. Or you found out from a friend of a friend that one person said a mean thing about you. You're legit thinking, I might not, I might unfriend them on Facebook or slyly, like way more passive-aggressive, just mute them so I never see or like their things. Or perhaps, maybe this takes place in marriage, you find out that your spouse spent more money on themselves than you had mutually agreed upon, and so instead of talking about that, you go to your favorite website and spend just as much, if not more, on yourself 
knowing that they have no rebuttal morally, right? If you hurt me, I'll hurt you. When we ignore holiness, hear this, church. When we ignore holiness in the face of injustice, it's called retaliation. Retaliation is part of our personal moral framework, even if it's only in these seemingly insignificant ways. And both, our systematic way of doing this and our personal way of doing this, both lead to death. Systematically, we choose holiness over justice. It leads to actual bloodshed. But living in such a way, particular as the church, leads to a moral ineptitude of the bride of Christ in the 21st century. We are dead as a force for kingdom good when we neglect God's heart for justice, believing that it's in a separate chamber of the heart to find holiness. Personally, this leads to the death of relationships. No good relationship is cultivated when we keep score and retaliate against one another. What we find when we believe all of this, we live this sort of way, what we find, what we believe we can or should do is choose holiness or justice. We do not believe that they come together. Do you see the sin, violence, and death brewing in Jerusalem is brewing in our hearts as well. See, the issue, of course, is underneath all of this. The real sin, the real ailment concerns what we believe about God. When we retaliate in relationships, it's really a failure to believe that God is both just and holy. We don't trust that God will make all things well, so we will do it ourselves. We don't trust that he will bring about his will, so we bring about ours. We hide behind our claims of holiness even while living in comfortable proximity with unjust, broken systems and situations because we don't believe that God is just and holy. We trust that God cares only for our quiet times and not the red lines on maps that prevent certain ethnicities from buying houses in certain communities. So we cling to our interpretations of holiness. In essence, we do not believe that God is unified, that he's one. We believe he's divided, that sometimes he's just, sometimes he's holy, and we get to pick and choose when to apply which characteristic to our life. Now, another objection perhaps is that this is really harsh. Why would we spend so much time thinking about what holiness looks like for a victim and those who are suffering injustice? That just seems cruel. Perhaps you think we ought to only speak about the repentance and the consequence coming to the oppressor. Well, today's text takes us very directly to what Paul is going through as a victim, but where the victim finds hope, the oppressor finds justice. The oppressor finds ultimately what is coming their direction as well. Here's what I mean by this. When we avoid seeing what it means to be holy, even as the victim of incredible injustice, we miss the beauty and the power of the cross for the victim as much as the cosmic consequence coming against the perpetrator. German theologian Jürgen Moltmann makes this very plain when he writes, Jesus doesn't just go through the suffering on the cross, his own suffering, but also the suffering of the poor and the weak, which Jesus shares in his own body and in his own soul in solidarity with them. On the cross, Christ both identifies God with the victims of violence and identifies the victims with God so that they are put under God's protection with him are given the rights which they have been deprived. 
God's justice and holiness are not contrary, they are complementary, and they are seen perfectly on the cross of Jesus Christ. So the unjust suffering of Paul in Jerusalem reminds us again of the unjust suffering of Jesus in Jerusalem. Similar to Paul, over and over again, Jesus is ridiculed by the crowd, beaten by local authorities, and yet no guilt could ever be found in Jesus. Luke retells this in Luke 23. Hear this. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him, that's Jesus, before Pilate, who's that local authority, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? I love this. And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all of Judea and Galilee, even to this place. In the face of unjust persecution, Jesus remains holy. They say, There's no guilt that I can find in this man. Jesus is beaten because they said that he was deceptive, and he wasn't. Jesus was beaten because they said he denied what was rightly Caesar's, he didn't. Jesus is beaten because they said he stirred up crowds everywhere he went, he didn't do that. In his timeless work, John Stott writes, in the cross of Christ, six different ways uh, that the Lord identifies with us in suffering for the sake of glory. He answers two questions. He says, what is the relationship between Christ's suffering and ours? How does the cross speak to us in our pain? And and here's how he answers that in a six-fold way. The cross of Christ is a stimulus for us to patient endurance. The cross of Christ is a pathway for us to mature holiness. The cross of Christ is a symbol of suffering service. The cross of Christ is a hope of final glory. The cross of Christ is the ground of reasonable faith. And lastly, the cross of Christ is the proof of God's solitary love. And that last point in particular becomes incredibly clear in verse 11. Look at it with me. The solitary love of God. The following night, the Lord stood by him. Remember what Paul has gone through. Over and over again, a victim of injustice, of a whole crowd, of the authority, of the governing authority of Jerusalem, and then of the religious authority of Jerusalem. Paul is running out of friends, it may feel like, weary, weeping, still bleeding, not getting the medical care that he needs, perhaps left alone, dark in a jail cell, and it's right there when no one else could get to him. The Lord stood with him. Paul, the victim of incredible evil, now Jesus draws near to him. In his pain, in his suffering, in his confinement, the Lord stood with Paul. When no one else could come close, the Lord Jesus drew near. This is the cross. This is a picture of the cross for us. The cross is where the Lord draws near to the victim, to the one going through suffering, to the one going through pain. He identifies with us in our weakness, in our shame, in the injustice carried out against us. After all, the cross is the place where the God of the Bible directly combats injustice, and he does so through perfect holiness. And yet, this is where he doesn't resist. 
where he has every right to resist and remain within holiness, remain within justice. He has every right to resist, and he doesn't. Jesus, therefore, because he did not resist on the cross, therefore he is able to identify with you and your pain. Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin in her fabulous new book, Confronting Christianity, I think makes this much clearer than I ever could. We have all heard the experience of being comforted by someone who doesn't truly understand what we're going through. It is often unsatisfying, but Jesus is no remote deity. Watching suffering from a safe distance, he is the God who inhabits our suffering. We see in the Gospels how Jesus is moved with compassion for suffering people. This compassion goes beyond sympathy. Jesus does not just feel sorry for us in our weakness and pain. He takes that agony on himself. In that context, she alludes to Isaiah 53, where Isaiah foretells of the willingness of Jesus on the cross. He was oppressed and was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was not taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken from the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered injustice, yet he did not fight back, at least not to the point of resisting and refusing the cross. The divine rebuttal of God against injustice is resurrection. The divine response of God against this murderous act on the cross is that his kingdom would come to bear and that death itself would be put in the grave. He does all of this enduring injustice and suffering with no deceit. He was innocent. He was holy. All of justice, all of holiness right there in the person and work of Jesus. And because Jesus suffered and did not reject it, you and I can now take courage. See, Jesus didn't just stand by Paul, though that was powerful enough. Look what he says to him in the latter half of verse 11. He said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Take courage. Jesus doesn't just show up. He brings a word. Can I get an amen? He had something to say. This gives me as a preacher incredible hope, incredible encouragement, that yes, to show up is powerful, and yes, to bring a word is powerful, because he brings change, he brings transformation, he brings encouragement. Jesus is not just moral and holy. Jesus is power personified and present. Take courage. This is a fabulous phrase. In the original language, it's actually just a single word. The summons is a dynamic evidence of the fact that an encounter with Jesus Encounter with Jesus, God's action is accomplished as a liberating action. The gospel of Jesus is both his proclamation and his action gives joy and confidence, says G. Kittle in his take on the word. See, this is the point of the story. In suffering, especially unjustly, Jesus is present 
and powerful because he knows what you're going through and he has accomplished all that befalls you. What does Paul need encouragement in? It's a bit odd. He's gone through a lot already. It's a bit odd at this point. See, what I would want Jesus to say is like, Paul, don't worry. Literally outside, there is fire. It's just floating in the air. There's fire and swords and all kinds of weaponry. We're going to bust you out of this mug. We're going to kill all of these people who are mean to you, who hurt you, who said evil things. And I'm like, yeah, I'll take courage in that. Or maybe that's just me. (laughs) That's what I would have wanted in that moment. That would have felt like justice to me. Yet he says, take courage. Why does Paul need encouragement? Well, in a word, he's going to need endurance. Not only to endure what he has just gone through in Jerusalem, but notice he says, you have testified about me in Jerusalem. Now you're going to go do the same thing in Rome. Everything that Paul has just done in Jerusalem, he's going to be asked to do again in Rome. Now, now for many of us, this, this directly assaults something that, that Acts has really been unearthing for us as a church. That a lot of times we believe, if I obey for this like appointed season of time, if I do a hard thing for an appointed season of time, on the other side of that is luxury, is, is peaceableness, is comfort, is all the warm fuzzies that I feel like are hashtagged on Instagram. Those are the things that I desire, God. If I obey you for three months, will you bless me for nine? This is kind of how the relationship is supposed to work. But as Paul is still bleeding in Jerusalem, the Lord says, take courage, you're going to go bleed in Rome too. See, in our mind's eye, this goes directly against what we would expect and what we believe the, the reward of obedience is supposed to be. But instead, what we learn in Acts, what we learn in this passage in particular, is that the reward of obedience is often another opportunity to obey. Another opportunity to obey, and yet in that obedience, the Lord has drawn near to us. He is with us, encouraging us, equipping us. You see, the point of justice and holiness is not to achieve some banal religious mountain peak. The point of justice and holiness is to bring the order of God and his new world to bear in this age, in our city in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our hearts. See, Jesus is bringing about his kingdom through obedience. That's the hope of Israel. That's the point of resurrection. New life, new order, justice, holiness, peace. All shall be well. See, Jesus is able to say, take courage to Paul and to you and to me because Jesus has already said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He is able to call us to holiness because he has already cemented justice. He has already written the end of the story, signed it, sealed it, and delivers it by his spirit and by his power. The question is, are we willing to obey? Are we willing to walk in that? Are we willing to take courage? Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we as always, want to begin after we have heard your word by asking for your forgiveness. We ask for your forgiveness because we are of little faith, myself included. I so quickly choose justice or holiness, whichever befits my situation better. I ask for your forgiveness in the ways that really what that reveals in my heart and our hearts is we don't trust that you really are just. We don't trust that you really are holy. And so we thank you that the cross is a wonderful response to our sinful belief 
We thank you that on the cross we see holiness, we see justice, we see the perfection and power of your Son. And so, Father, I pray, would you reform our hearts? Would you reform our minds? Would you reform us as a people that we might not simply believe that your heart is divided, but that we would see that there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And may we be people who take courage in that, that we might be used for your kingdom purposes in this world. 